Amen. Remain standing if you're able for Acts chapter 16. Let's read together in Acts 16 beginning in verse 1. This is the second missionary journey of Paul. He has Silas with him now. Acts 16 and verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay." And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own masters much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into their inner prison, into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we thank you for it. And we pray that you would speak it into our hearts today. Open our eyes and our ears to hear from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. I think if I took a survey of everyone in the room today, uh, most of us would acknowledge that our preference when it comes to faith and life is we would prefer things to be predictable. We don't necessarily like unexpected things. Now, maybe when it's our birthday, a surprise is okay, but other than that, for the most part, we like to know what's coming. We like to get what we expect. We would prefer, I think if we were honest, that if we do certain things, we would get certain results. If we share our faith with a family member, that they respond by believing. That would be our preference. If we raise our children in the church and teach them to walk in the ways of faith, that all of their days they would do this and never stray. That would be our preference. If we work hard and tell the truth, that the fruit of our effort would lead to financial stability. And no surprises. If we follow biblical guidelines in our marriage that our spouse would never hurt or betray us, that if we read God's word each day and study it diligently, we would always know the right and wise thing to do in every situation. That would be our preference. If we pray for a godly spouse, God would not leave us single or alone, but would bring the perfect person for us. Or to say all of this just plainly, that if we pray long enough and hard enough, God will give us what we want. That would be our preference. The problem with this way of thinking, of course, is that it has the tendency to turn our faith into legal transactions. There is a little legalist inside every one of us, every single one of us, and we have this tendency to turn faith into a series of legal transactions. We surmise that if we do this, God should do that. Tit for tat, straightforward transactions. But this isn't what we see in Scripture. Biblical Christianity is not a series of legal transactions. It is one sole transaction. And the only way that we contribute is in the deficit column, our sin. Biblical Christianity teaches us that Christ died for sinners, his enemies, and redeemed them to the Father, making them pure, crediting them with his righteousness. And we agree with this idea when it comes to our salvation. 
But when it comes to living the daily life that we all live, this is hard to believe sometimes. Because a lot of times we experience unexpected things. Things don't go the way that we want them to go. And so we're surprised. Well, the kingdom of God is often filled with surprises. And it's not for the sake of God having some sick sense of humor in heaven trying to get us. But rather, God uses the unexpected, as we'll see today in the, ta- in the text, to lead us to faith in Him, trusting Him more deeply, knowing Him more surely. So we don't have to be afraid of the surprises. We don't have to be anxious for anything about what's coming next. That's the big idea. That's what I want you to see today. There's the, the theme of the sermon before we even get into it. Write that down. Think about that. God is trustworthy. He is faithful. And he loves each of you more than you can imagine. So, Acts 16, let's begin. This is the second missionary journey, as I mentioned, of Paul. He has Silas with him this time. And they come to Lystra and to Derbe, and they meet young Timothy. Timothy is described as a disciple. In other words, Timothy is already a believer. He's already come to faith. His mother is also a believer. This probably happened on Paul's first missionary journey uh, when he came through Lystra with Barnabas. Paul would later to describe Timothy in multiple places as his beloved son in the faith. Paul and Timothy had a special relationship. Paul embraced Timothy as his son in Christ. And Timothy would not only prove to be a disciple and a helper to Paul, but he would also later become a pastor and a leader in the early church. I think what's interesting is, you know, last week we looked at the relationship that Paul had with John Mark, and he kind of rebuffed him when John Mark left on the first missionary journey. And when Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark again, Paul said no, and it ended up leading to a division in that relationship, something that I think most of us find surprising, that those two men would allow such a sharp disagreement. And yet, not long after that, here we see Paul kind of softened to a young potential leader. I think Paul was learning and growing just like any of us are. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Now we know from later texts in in the letters to Timothy that his mother's name was Eunice, his grandmother's name was Lois, and they both taught him the scriptures from a young age. We don't know a lot about his father other than that he was Greek, but this plays into what's about to happen next. From the text, most scholars think that his father was deceased because of the way the language is used. It comes out in the English as well. It uses past tense in describing his father. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers. He had a good reputation, and Paul saw this as a potential. And because of this, verse 3, Paul desires to have Timothy join them on their missionary journey together. And then we see another unexpected event. What does Paul do but take Timothy and circumcise him? Why? Why after the Jerusalem council was just in Acts 15 and the decision was made that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, why did he do it? It doesn't make sense. Well, the text tells us that it's because of the Jews in those areas. But the text tells us a little bit more as well to help us understand that. So let's look. First, we know that it wasn't for salvation that Paul had Timothy circumcised. Timothy was already a believer. He's described as a disciple. So that wasn't Paul's motivation. But rather, it was because Timothy was considered a Jew because his mother was a Jew. According to Jewish law, one's Jewishness comes through the maternal line. 
And so Timothy was considered a Jew, and to not be circumcised as a male Jew would make him an apostate to other Jews. And this, in turn, would become a stumbling stone. And if Paul was going to take him on a missionary journey, and their typical fashion was to enter into synagogues initially, he did not want Timothy to be a stumbling stone to Jews hearing that Jesus was the Messiah. In other words, Paul's motivation was for the sake of the gospel. It parallels, if we look back at the Jerusalem Council's decision, you remember there were two themes of that decision. Holiness, abstain from sexual immorality, and deference. Don't go toward meat, don't have anything to do with meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And the idea there was don't create a stumbling stone to either young believers or believers who weren't mature in the faith to not know that that wasn't a problem. Just don't do it. Show deference. And here Paul is doing the same thing, potentially to Jewish people who had come to faith, but also to Jews who were yet to be believers to prevent them from stumbling over the rock of Christ. And so we see Paul does this for the sake of the gospel. And now Paul with Silas and Timothy continue through the region instructing the churches and strengthening them in their faith, and we see the churches are growing. Next, we see some misdirection. Paul and Timothy and Silas and the others that were on this missionary team have made their plans and they're working westward uh, through what we know as modern-day Turkey, but the continent of Asia. And we see Luke describe to us how our Trinitarian God works to guide them. Look in verse 6. It states, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, Asia in this in this instance, is a region, not the continent of Asia, the way that we normally use that word. Uh, there was a, you know, Galatia was a region. Um, these other names, Bithynia, Phrygia, these were regions. Asia was one of these as well. And so Paul was prevented in this region, what we would consider modern-day Turkey. In verse 7, we read that it was the Spirit of Jesus who did not allow them to go to Bithynia when they tried. And then in verse 10, we see that they went to Macedonia concluding that God had them to preach the gospel there. So the team was working together. They were responding. We don't know how the Lord directed their steps, what he did. Was it Roman roadblocks? Was it, you know, we know at least one was a vision and a dream that Paul had for the Macedonian call. But beyond that, we don't know what the details were. But it said that they decided together what, how God was leading them. And together they concluded that the leading of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who was guiding them to go where they went. And the reason I point this out is that the Trinity is something uh, that's hard, hard to understand and for some hard to believe. But we see it throughout the New Testament. We see it not only in the Great Commission, most clearly baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus, but we see it here even in this text, that the early church clearly believed in the Trinity, and Luke acknowledges that here as he writes this letter. In the same way, we make our plans, and the Lord directs our steps. Sometimes in an unexpected direction, uh, the Macedonian call was one of these. It's become known as that, and it's become a, a, a tool to launch missions out as this vision of this brother saying, come and help us. I think this parallels what we're trying to do in our missions efforts, looking for those who we can partner with to come alongside to help for the sake of the gospel. Now, again, the scripture doesn't tell us the reasoning for the Lord's directing them around Asia. They went around north of what would be modern-day Turkey to Troas. But the results are now that God, the, the God, 
gospel is being moved by the sovereign hand of God toward Europe. For the first time, it crosses over. The region of Macedonia is in modern-day Greece. So this is Europe. They're going to cross over the Aegean Sea. And if you'll notice also in verse 10, as they make this move, the language changes in the chapter. It goes from Luke stops using the third-person plural to the first-person plural. And he starts using we in verse 10. What does that mean? Well, Luke's with them now. Luke has joined the journey. He was in the area, Troas, somewhere around in that area, and he now is with them. And we see this happen in Acts again. He's going to join them later. Scholars believe he actually stayed in Philippi. We're going to leave him there. He's going to show up there again later. You notice not only does he use the first person, uh, or the first person plural, he also adds a lot more detail in what the travel looked like. So there's a lot more uh, detail of how long it took. They spent two days going over, coming back. It took them five days, so there was some headwind. and We have some extra detail in that passage as well. They arrive, they sail across the Aegean Sea, they arrive, they travel up to Philippi, which is not along the coast, but inland a little bit, verse 12. Luke mentions in passing this is a Roman colony, which comes in play later because Paul and Silas are going to be unjustly imprisoned and beaten, and the magistrates didn't know that they were indeed Roman citizens. Now, there's no mention of a synagogue here in Philippi, which leads most to conclude that there were very few Jews in this area. Jewish law stated that 10 male members were necessary to establish a synagogue. So it seems that there were probably fewer than that. And so in another unexpected turn from their typical pattern of going into the synagogue on the Sabbath, the missionary team locates a prayer meeting. Verse 13 says the prayer meeting was along a riverside made up of women. And here we see yet another surprise. The gospel is now proclaimed to this group, including Lydia, who's an immigrant, from Thyatira. Where's Thyatira? In Asia Minor, across the way where Paul had just been prevented from going. Verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart. She responded to the gospel. That's what the Lord does to every one of our hearts. It's not through power of persuasion. It's not through excellent preaching. It's not through strong-arm attempts at conversion. But it's when God opens our heart that we come to saving faith. C.H. Spurgeon writes, What an odd thing it seemed that this woman should be a woman of Thyatira in Asia, and Paul must not go and preach in Asia, and yet when he comes to Macedonia, the first person who hears them is a woman of Asia. The hand of providence. God knows what he's doing. You know, again, we make our plans, the Lord directs our steps. It doesn't always make sense to us how he's leading and working, but we can trust him to work all things together for good. So Lydia comes to faith and was baptized along with her household. Now this passage is not a proof text for infant baptism, but it certainly supports the concept of the the covenantal framework of why we baptize entire households. We see this happen here. We see it happen again with the jailer and his household. The fact that God typically and normally works through the family in covenant to bring the gospel. And there's a unique privilege for those children who grow up with a believing parent in the home. And just as the sign and seal of circumcision were given in the Old Testament to all male children, so the sign of baptism is given to all children in the new covenant. Now Lydia's final act before Luke and, uh, or before, well, Luke's with them, but Paul and Silas as well take off, is an act of hospitality. And I think it's worth noting. 
Luke writes that she prevailed upon us. I think they were in a hurry, typical men, men on a mission, we're off to the next place, we got to go. And she says, no, please, if I have uh, you know, done anything, please acknowledge that by coming to my home. And she obviously had the means. Uh, she was persuasive and she showed them great warmth. And it, it, it brings to, to mind this idea of hospitality. I came across the quote this week. And at first when I read the quote, I was really encouraged by it and then I was really convicted by it. So I want to share it with you. Uh, because it, it, um, I think it, 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 it shows us how we can function as Christians in terms of using hospitality, and in particular our homes. Karen Maines, um, the writer says, is helpfully and insightfully distinguished entertaining from showing hospitality. For some, the thought of having half a dozen strangers, I think it was probably more than half a dozen. There were probably at least a dozen uh, in this missionary party, but at least half a dozen strangers into the home would require several weeks of preparation uh, in, before having them come into her home. But entertaining, she suggests, is saying, I want to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, my gourmet cooking. Hospitality, however, seeks to minister. It says... This home is not mine. It's truly a gift from my master. I am his servant, and I use it as he desires. Hospitality does not try to impress, but to serve. Entertaining always puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, my place settings complete, my housework done, then I will start having people in. The so-and-sos are coming. I must buy the new such-and-such before they come. Hospitality, however, puts people before things. We have no furniture, we'll eat on the floor. Entertaining subtly declares, this is mine. These rooms, these adornments, this is an expression of my own personality. It's an extension of who I am and what I am. Look, please, and admire. Hospitality whispers, what is mine is yours. And here's the secret of community community that is all but lost to the church today. The hospitality of the first century church clearly said, What's mine is yours. Again, I don't know if that resonates with you. It's encouraging. It's also deeply convicting. Do I look at my possessions and my things and my time and my efforts in this way? Or do I look at it from the entertainer perspective? What an unexpected delight then for this missionary team to have first been prevented from going to a number of places in Asia to then arrive in Philippi was such a tremendous response to the gospel. Not only the saving faith of Lydia, but also the jailer that we're about to see, but also just a sign of maturity, of true Christian love. And the church at Philippi would grow to have a special place in Paul's heart. And if you've, I'm assuming you've probably all read the, the, the book of Philippians at some point, the letter of love as it's come, come to be known. This was the beginning of that church, really, in Philippi. Well, the team stayed for some time, and on a subsequent Sabbath, we don't know how long it was, if it was a week or multiple weeks, but they were going to the prayer meeting, as would have been the custom on a Sunday. And on one Sunday, they encounter a girl who is a slave, and she's possessed by a demon. Verse 16, this young lady was doubly enslaved. In other words, she was enslaved to her earthly masters, but she was also enslaved to a demonic master. And this demonic master enabled her for, to foretell the future. And so her earthly masters used this to make themselves rich. She followed Paul and the team and proclaimed, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
You might say, well, that sounds like good advertisement. It's a true statement, right? Well, it became a source of frustration for Paul when it went on for days. And keep in mind, the demonic realm was not interested in assisting the work of the kingdom of God. And it's, it's subtle, but please notice this. Often, Satan will use things that are true or partially true or use pieces of truth in the wrong way in order to distract or to, uh, you know, pay no attention to the, to the man behind the curtain kind of thing in the Wizard of Oz. That's often how Satan works, and that's what's happening here. And so Paul's response then was to cast the demon out of the girl. And the demon leaves in the name of Jesus, and the girl is now freed. But her, her masters are angry because their source of income is gone. And so they stir up the town, and Paul and Silas are beaten. 39 lashes, as would have been the custom. This would not have been a pleasant experience. I won't go into detail, but the beating would have left their backs wounded greatly. And Paul and Silas end up in prison. But while they're in prison, another surprise, another unexpected thing. I don't know about you, but when things don't go the way that I expect, when I get surprises in life that throw things off the rails for me, my tendency is to go to anger or to anxiety or to depression or to fear or some kind of thing like this. These guys were wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned, beaten, and they're singing and praying to God. How do you respond like that? They knew Christ. They trusted Christ. They walked with Christ. And Christ delivered them. The earthquake comes, the jail shakes, doors are open, shackles fall off, everyone's free, and the jailer is about to take his own life because he knows the consequences of losing even one of his prisoners. And Paul stops him and says, no one's gone. No one's escaped. And look at what the jailer, how he responds. Why would the jailer respond this way? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, just what happened in Lydia's heart, God stirred her heart, he opened her heart, Luke doesn't tell us in the text, but that's exactly what happens for the jailer. God clearly worked in his heart that he would react to the jail and an earthquake and the doors flying open to, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But God was working in his heart, and that's exactly what he did. And Paul responds, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And once again, we see the covenant theme of God working through the family. None of us are an island to ourselves. Verse 32 says that he explained the word of God to the jailer and to his household. So this was not something that happened quickly. They spent time together. And then another unexpected event. The jailer washes the wounds of Paul and Silas. Imagine this. The jailer, the one who was to be in power over them, guarding them, preventing them from freedom, is now the one bringing healing. This is an image of the transformation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it changes lives. And we certainly see this jailer's life change. In turn, he is then baptized, he and his whole household. He takes them, he feeds them, and they all rejoice. This again shows us the upside-down, unexpected way of the kingdom of God. Paul and Silas are wrongly imprisoned and beaten so that a jailer can come to faith, him and his household. Not only the jailer, but the household, meaning 
in a household in this kind of setting, and certainly one, a, a, a jailer, this would have been his family, possibly extended family, also his employees or servants and their families. God, is this how you want the gospel to go forward? For me to be wrongly imprisoned, to be beaten? This is not how I would prefer to see things worked out. And yet, this is what the Lord does. I think if we were to, again, take a survey and look at the spiritual family trees of each person in this room, we would see a lot of strange and good providences of how the Lord worked to bring each one of you to faith. And so for this reason, we can embrace the twists and turns of life, knowing that God is truly working all things together for good. How do you handle unexpected things? How do you handle surprises? Is it anger, depression, thinking God's out to get you? Do you become fearful and anxious, wondering if unexpected things will ruin your life? I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. Life is hard. To live is to suffer. There's real pain involved. I'm not trying to to minimize that. No one is immune from it. I think we forget this in this age of social media where everybody puts their best life out and you don't see any of the, the garbage and you can begin to believe that your life is horrible because you're living through the normalcy of life and everybody else is having amazing vacations and buying amazing things. But this isn't reality. And for those who don't know Christ, it becomes even more painful and more hurtful because of the apparent meaninglessness of it all. Why do we suffer? In the end, apart from Christ, there's no hope. But we have a sure hope. You and I have a true hope, and his name is Jesus. And he not only promises to work all things together for good, he promises that nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. He promises that he's not only going to prepare a place, that he is preparing a place for us, but that he's coming back to receive us unto himself. And maybe the greatest promise is the promise of himself and that he will never leave us or forsake us. And this table that we come to today is a tangible reminder of these promises that we can face the unexpected things in life knowing that not only do they not destroy us, but that God in his omnipotence can and will use these things to bring great good for us and all who love him. The destruction of his son on the cross is the greatest example of that. And it's his ruin that gives us our hope and our future. So let's come and eat and savor the goodness of our Lord. Let's taste and see that he